Welcome to episode 18 of That Classical Podcast. This time, Borjak and Brahms. Borjak, baby Borjak. Hello. Hello. My name is Chris Bland. My name is Kelly Harlock. And you're listening to That Classical Podcast. It's episode 18 today. It's episode 18. And um, we're very pleased and excited at the moment. So we were just recently featured on the front page of iTunes. And um, yeah, so welcome to all our new listeners who found us through that. Hello, listeners. A very warm welcome to you. All our regulars. All right, mate. Welcome back. (laughs) So today we are going to talk about two very special composers. Um, We're going to talk about Dvorak. Yeah. And he's written as Dvorak, so beware of that one. Um, (laughs) I called him that until last year. True true story. Um, And Brahms, whose name is written as Brahms. 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 Yeah. Um, Brilliant. So let's just launch straight in. Mm. Dvorak. Um, (laughs) That's no one calls him. Now... Lads and lassies, if you're a long-time listener, you'll understand that right now we're about to do a 60-second biography. Oh, time if for the 60, 60 time for the good. And so this means we're going to sort of condense a composer's life down into 60 seconds. Uh, or at least we're going to try. I'm no pressure. Best. No pressure. I feel a lot of pressure. Chris, are you ready? I've got my timer out. Time. I'm ready to learn all about Dvorak I'm, in 60 seconds. I'm never ready, so here right. we go. Ready, steady, Go. Anthony Leopold Dvorak was born in September 1841 near Prague, the first of 14 kids. He started playing the violin at six years old, showing early talent. He was sent to live with his uncle to learn German at 13 and took music lessons from a scary German language teacher. At the age of 16, his family allowed him to pursue a career as an organist, and in 1857, he went to an organ school in Prague. He graduated in 1859, but people were like, your organing sucks, and he played in orchestras on the viola instead. He made about five quid a month, started giving piano lessons, met his wife, the younger sister of the girl he fancied, but she married someone else. He began to compose by 1860, burning his early attempts because he thought they were crap. 1865, wrote the first symphony in C minor, but didn't publish a performance work until the 1870s. 1871, left the orchestra to compose, got some recognition in Prague in 1874, six, and seven won the Austrian state prize for compositions. Brahms was on the jury and Brahms was like, hey, let me help a brother out and uh, told about told the world about Dvorak and his music. Huge success internationally with the Slavonic Dancers in 1878-1883 performed in London. Sparked off, of, uh, sparked off a buttload of performances in the States and Russia. 1892 became director of the National Conservatory of Music in New York. Developed a new passion for steamships and pigeons. Was inspired by African-American and Native American music. Wrote the American String Quartet in 1893. Premiered Nights of the New World. Left. But the best thing he ever wrote, huge success. Returned to Prague in 1895 um, and became director of the Prague Conservatory. May 1904, he died of a stroke at 62 Three, years. Two, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was information dense. <laughs> that was information a, dump. <laughs> that was a lot. So you might need to listen back to that at half speed or something. That was, oh, I think, I of all the ones we've done so far, that's the most information that there you managed to pack in. There was so much information because he did so much stuff. Okay. Let so me break br- it Break it down, down ever so slightly um, for me. Let me fill you in. Craig David's style. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think... Well, like one of the main things we should talk about is is Dvorak's relationship to Brahms because yeah. we are doing an episode on both. And, it's almost um, as if we picked those two on purpose. Oh, my days. So Brahms basically was on the jury. So, so basically, Dvorak entered this Austrian State Prize for Composition mm. competition yeah. three times. In fact, he entered about a million times in his life. <laughs> um, but for the first three times he entered, Brahms was on the jury and Brahms was bloody blown away by okay. all of his entries. Right. And was just like a huge cheerleader for Dvorak for his entire life. Oh, that's nice. And like, he was, uh, like, later on, he wanted Dvorak um, to move to Vienna and he was like, look, my fortune is your fortune. Literally use my money, use my wow. family. Like, just <laughs> live here, please. Just be my buddy. And yeah, Dvorak just did so well and he was um, teaching in New York at the conservatory mm. there. And that's where he um, developed a passion for steamships and pigeons. Yeah. Like together, concurrently? I the, think like, I'm talking about moving forward, I don't know. And he was also a huge um, committed train spotter. Oh, yes, he sounds was. like a and, barrel uh, of love. My favourite my favorite fact about that is uh, when teaching, 
He would always ask his pupils to describe in detail any train journeys they had recently made. Oh, what a bore. I know, I know. And I was thinking, oh my God, Dvorak, if, if this was, if you were asking me about my recent train journeys, I would be like, well, Dvorak, I, I got on the train at Clapham Junction. I saw a man eating a pot of yogurt with only his tongue and no other utensil. Um, a sweaty man in a suit told me I was a bitch. <laughs> and uh, Same man, I or? waited as. <laughs> Quite possibly. And, you know, waited at Waterloo for eight hours. Um, it wouldn't quite be the same kind of train journeys that, that were back then. But, yeah, he'd often talk about pigeons more than he'd talk about music. Oh, wow. And generally... Okay, well, I hope his music's more fun than his hobbies. He... How dare you? <laughs> it is. And actually, okay, right. shall, we, shall we just... Uh, shall we go into the first piece? Oh, do let's. Great. So... If you, again, are a long-time listener of the show, you'll know that this is a safe place, a safe space for goblins. Um, I, we spoke about, yeah, we talked about, are oh, they goblins? Have, we have, um, in our Schubert, I love so, a good yeah. goblin. What can I, what can I say? You, that's just you who I goblins, am. Except yeah. me. Um, so today... Queen of the goblins, we, Kelly Hullock. We're going to talk about the water goblin, Ooh. or otherwise known as Vodnik in Czech. Okay. Okay, so it premiered in 1896, right? And it's back to uh, one of our favourites on that classical podcast. It's a symphonic poem. Oh, love right? me a good symphonic poem. So that means it's a it's a it's a poem, all right, mm. lads. And um, it's a poem by I can't say this name, Carol Yaromir Erben, called the Water Goblin, right? And Dvorak made it into music, and it's brilliant, and it's weird, and it's creepy, and scary, and annoying, and sad, and it's got every emotion in the dictionary. And here's the story. So a lonely water goblin. <laughs> Sits by a lake. All right, he's sad. He's he's pining for a wife. Right. He's he's been on Bumble and Tinder and OK Cupid. And I, <laughs> I, I guess he's the kind of guy that, that scares people away by asking if they're into pegging in a private message. Um, so he's not done very well there. Anyway, there he is. So he's he's decided to, he's going to get married soon. He doesn't right. he doesn't have a fiance. Okay. And he's singing to the moon and he's sewing a green coat. Um, with red boots for his impending wedding is in his mind palace. Is it important that they're green and red? I think that's his usual... This is the traditional right, goblin okay. dress. Traditional goblin colours. Um, and so, basically, he's, he's, he's a terrible person, so don't feel too sorry for him, OK? So, <laughs> terrible goblin. <coughs> terrible goblin. So elsewhere around here, a mother is talking to her daughter and she's like, oh, my God, like, don't go to that lake. I had a terrible premonition about that lake. Like, don't go, babes. And the daughter's like, oh, my God, you don't even know me. Like, I, please let me live my life, Mum, all right? Do you know what I mean? And she goes to the lake okay. um, to wash her clothes. As you do. And as soon as her clothes touch the water, the bridge collapses. Oh, nightmare. She falls into the swirling water and the water goblin is like, oh, my God, it's my lucky day. Here's my <laughs> wife. I don't even need dating her. It's like amazing. Um, and the goblin takes her to his underwater castle. And marries her. How can she breathe? I don't know. They have crayfish as groomsmen and fishes for bridesmaids. Nice. Which is disgusting, actually, hey, if you think about it. Don't like be fish racist. Fish. I just, I think it's gross. Um, <laughs> anyway, they have a kid. They have a little goblin child. Oh, okay. And one day the goblin wife is singing it a lullaby. And the goblin is like, could you please not? And they have this. Goblin is a total dick. Absolutely bastard. Um, and uh, they have a huge argument. Yeah. And the wife is like, "Hey, look, let me go up upstairs uh, to, to land and you know visit my mum." And he's like, "All right, yeah, but on three conditions only: don't touch anyone. The baby stays, and you have to return by the bells of evening vespers." All right. Okay. 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 Following. So the daughter reunites with her mum, and it's all sad and happy and sad. And then the bells start to ring and the mother refuses to let the daughter go home, right? So the goblin comes up and he thumps on the door and he's like, Oi, come home and make my dinner. 
pretty and misogynist then, goblin. Right, and then they're both like, F off. Um, he knocks again. He's like, oi, my bed needs to be made. Oi. Wow. And then they're like, do one. And then he says, oi, come and feed the baby. And so they say, mm, yeah, yeah right, fair, uh, fair. bring the baby here. And then there's a storm. And he kills the little goblin baby. Oh, no. He kills the goblin. I Why? mean, he's just a horrible, watery git, isn't he? He's just a terrible he's person. He's a rubbish, bad he's goblin git. He's an absolutely git. terrible goblin. Okay. So, look, that's the poem, and that is the piece. All right. All right? Okay. So, it's nine movements, and it tells it, and it's amazing. Once you've read this, you can hear it in every single second of that piece. Ooh. You can follow it. And so the piece we're going to play, the, the bit we're going to play right now is the theme of the goblin. Nice. So whenever the goblin pops his horrific, <laughs> horrid head. head up. Exactly. Um, this is the theme that plays. Um, so it's from the very beginning. Fab. Let's give it a go. Goblin-tastic. <laughs> so, so, sorry, my, the piece is just called The Water Goblin. It's just called The Water Goblin. Beautiful. Um, and uh, so that, those notes, the... Dum, dum, da, dum, 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 da, is, uh, so what we heard there was the goblin sitting under mm. the moonlight, scheming and sewing his <laughs> weird clothes. Ridiculous um, get-up. Exactly. And um, so you hear that constantly in the piece. Mm. And like I'm tr- I was trying to say earlier, it's like... You, whenever that comes in, you just kind of oh, you're like, oh god, not, not again, not, not it, this watery it's not because again. Of the piece, but just because you're like, what is he doing? Oh my god, <laughs> it is one of the few symphonic poems that like really truly like evoke the real story in every mm. moment. So rather than just sort of hinting at it and being suggestive, it's actually it's, telling it's, the narrative. It's really, really happening, and um, it gets very dark as well. Like this Ooh. is a kind of like jokes <laughs> beginning, <laughs> um, but it gets very dark obviously because of the story. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just highly, highly suggest that you listen to the whole thing. It's about twenty minutes long. Yeah. But it's well worth it. And uh, um, yeah, give give it a listen. Perfect. The classical podcast next. <laughs> Hi. (laughs) Right. On we go. Cello concerto. Cello. Rhyming. So we're going to talk about Dvorak's cello concerto in B minor. It's a good key. It's such a good key. It's a great key. There's so many good keys today. So, um, (laughs) right. This is actually one of the most regularly performed concertos out there. Am I right? You're right. Um, It's a favourite of everyone in the world. Um, (laughs) And that is a... That fact, classical podcast fact. fact. <laughs> so it was written in about 1894, 1895, and um, it's Dvorak's last solo concerto that he that he wrote. So by okay. this time he'd written all of his nine symphonies and, and a lot of buttload of stuff. Mm. So um, Dvorak had actually already started a cello concerto in A major. Yeah. So he started it in 1865, but never finished it because he was sort of not really asked <laughs> because <laughs> he thought, eh, 
um, he thought the cello was a sort of average. Do you know what I mean? He was what? like, he said it's fine. It's fine That's as so an orchestral weird. instrument, but totally not cool for a solo concerto. Which I think, yeah, I know. He said apparently he liked the middle bits, but not the high or low bits. <laughs> I like, I like <laughs> the middle bits. Dwarshi, come on. That's really strange. Um, so anyway, well, but... It's quite a middly concerto, I guess. It doesn't like go... You're, you are it? right, you're right. Yeah. Well, more, more, more on that later. Okay. Um, so anyway, his cellist mate, a guy called... Um, <laughs> Hanush Vihan. You're killing it with the foreign I'm names today. Sorry, everyone. Um, Hanush Vihan, um, who was really fat, a really famous Czech cellist at the time, hmm. was like, please, 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 I'll give you a pigeon. Please make me a concerto. <laughs> I'll like, tell you please. all about my train I'll journeys. Tell you. <laughs> Every detail. There was a tree. Um, <laughs> so he started writing it, right, uh, whilst he was in New York working at the conservatory that I talked about in the frenzied 60-second mm. biography. And so then he gave it to Hanoush, who, upon playing it, had loads of kind of flashy suggestions for himself. But Dvorak was like, mate, it's not really about that. Like, it's not really about you, like, in the nicest <laughs> way, which I love. I really love that he did that. And actually... Yeah. As we listen to it, you'll, you'll, I mean, we can only play 30 seconds, but um, if you listen to the whole thing, it's so true. It, it rarely is like, hi, look at me, I'm a cello in the concerto. <laughs> yeah, it's no, like, yeah, it, yeah. it's so, it's so generally just like celebrating every different part of the orchestra. And it, I absolutely. The cello part like serves the piece rather than being this sort exactly. of ridiculous. Exactly. It's not like, hi, I'm yeah. great. Um, so, and also just before we listen, Bram said upon hearing it, why on earth didn't I know that one could write a cello concerto like this? Had I known, I would have written one long ago. <laughs> oh, Paul, we'll come on to this later when I talk about Brahms. But he was so hard on himself. He, like, he? you know how you said that Dvorak burnt a load of his yeah, stuff? Yeah. Brahms, too, just destroyed loads of his Maybe own he work. Got that from Brahms. Yeah, yeah possibly. Anyway, we'll get on to that later. Lads, let's, let's listen. It's absolutely oh, great. Let's have a go. That. Crikey. Um, so that was, having said that it's not Hello, I'm a Cello, I played probably the most Hello, I'm a Cello part sure. of the piece. Um, but it was, wasn't super flashy. It was just no, like restating yeah, sure, the sure. tune. Yeah. Um, so it's three movements and that was the first movement, the Allegro. And oh my days. I mean, I love it, yeah. oh, it's just so good. And it's one of those things that has been in my head for years and I never knew what it was. The yeah. da, 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 da. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, and then when you find out, you're like, yes, finally, it's that one. And fun fact for, for you, um, I, when I worked in the kind of string business, um, string instruments, not just string, uh, all the cellists that came in to buy a cello played those notes oh, really? to try out cellos. Oh, that and must And for like a year, awful. I was like, what is that? <laughs> But um, no, I never got sick of it. Okay, it's, cool. it's, it's such a beautiful piece. Do go and listen to it. Actually, the middle movement doesn't really have that doesn't really have that theme in it. It's got a new theme mm. that was one of Dorjak's other songs called "Leave Me Alone." Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, no, and, yeah. yeah. And fun fact: Do you remember in the sixty seconds I said that he was in love 
with his wife's sister. Why is everyone right, in love? This, keeps happening. this is a musician thing. I feel like it's yeah, on the cards for us. <laughs> um, but so um, he was in love with his sister-in-law, but then she was got married to someone else, and so he married mm, her yeah. younger sister. But but at this time when he wrote this, she was really ill. His sister-in-law was ill, so he kind of dedicated the, the piece to her. She was called Josephina, and so that "Leave Me Alone" was her favorite oh, nice. song, and so he put it in there. And That's really anyway, and finally. <laughs> I must tell you, this concerto has one of the best endings to any classical piece I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> like the final minute and 30 seconds yeah. out of this world. What a please, teaser. Please go and listen. <laughs> please, please go and listen. Anyway, so look, that's Dvorak. Um, Sorry, we can't do any more. Uh, but I hope you've enjoyed it. And um, I think if you want to listen to more mm-hmm. of Dvorak, check out, let's think, Slavonic Dances. Yeah. They are his huge number one hit, Top of the Pops. Um, also another massive hit, uh, Symphony Number no. 9 from the New World. Huge. Sounds like Jaws. Sounds a bit like Jaws. Sounds a bit like Jaws. Yeah. Also, check out his amazing string quartet. The American mm. quartet um, is really, really good. Uh, he's got so much beautiful stuff. You'll love it all, I guarantee. For sure. Um, and let us know what you find. Next up, we've got Johannes Brahms. Johannes! Yeah! Oh, very good. Um, so Brahms, pretty pretty famous, I'd say. He's sort of, he's <laughs> up there with, yeah. with the big names. Mm-hmm. Um, German originally, um, lived in Vienna lots of his life. Loved lullabies. You know why I'm talking like this? I'm uh, stalling. I'm trying to put off the inevitable 60-second bio that has <laughs> to happen. You can try, but you'll fail. Uh, okay, right. I also have to do the 60-second. Um, I am ready and waiting for you to do this. Right. Are you? Are you I am also ready to give you this? his entire life and times. So okay, right. Three and a two and a one. Okay. Johannes Brahms, born 1833, died 1897. He was born in Hamburg to a musical family. Couldn't stop composing. Made money as a teen playing piano in brothels, etc., maybe? Um, he soaked up a lot of musical styles. Beethoven, Mozart, Haydn, Hungarian gypsy-style music, all that stuff. Met Robert Schumann in 1853. Robert loved him, wrote an article basically saying, holy crap, you guys, look at Brahms. Brahms, always very self-critical, didn't like this that much, but Schumann's support got Brahms' stuff published. Hooray! Schumann ended up in a sanatorium next year. Uh, Brahms began a relationship with uh, Schumann's wife, Clara Schumann, who's a composer in her own right. Uh, probably never more than platonic, but Brahms never married um, he had some flings as well Ooh. slowly getting off the ground but not super successful um, as a piano player and a composer he moved to Vienna composed the German Requiem after the death of his, death of his mother uh, performed all across uh, Europe in the 1860s Brahms has success yay career as a piano player and conductor burgeoning so he does that alongside composing uh, grows a massive beard at one point because he feels like it um, <laughs> he's getting loads of respect and admiration at this point except Ten. for Wagner is his fans who have beef with his style uh, he died of liver cancer less than one year after Clara Schumann died Five. buried in Vienna near Beethoven and Schubert in the same graveyard oh Oh, 58 seconds. I'll take it. <laughs> Just a little extra clause at the end. My favourite part, he grew an enormous beard, <laughs> which yeah, is so... really the most important thing from that. So, Tell me more. So he, uh, as a young man, was always clean shaven. And then, um, <laughs> so I was reading in a biography of Brahms this week that this was apparently a great example of what a great sense of humour he had. So um, this was in about sort of the... Um, 1878, I think it was. So he surprised his friends by growing a large beard. So he wrote to one of his friends, I'm coming with a large beard. Prepare your wife for a most awful sight. And uh, this one singer recalled after a concert, I saw a man unknown to me, rather stout of middle height, with long hair and a full beard. In a very deep and hoarse voice, he introduced himself as Musikdirektor Müller. And instant later, we all found ourselves laughing, laughing heartily at the perfect success of Brahms' disguise. Sorry. 
It's the worst joke I've ever heard of. That is the worst. He is the worst. I'm sorry. That's the worst. How could you? How could you want to surprise someone and then write them a letter telling them what you're going to do? I've grown a big beard. It is quite a big beard. If you look at a photo, are we talking Father Christmas? Are we talking? We'll post a photo on Instagram. Plaited. It's a real. No, it's just a really solid large beard. I feel like. He thought he was more of a lad than he actually We're was. We're getting sidetracked. The sorry. main point of Brahms was not that he had a big beard. <laughs> I mean, um, never forget. He did. So, yeah, so he had a slightly rocky beginning to his career. So his first piano concerto that he performed, for the first couple of performances, he was booed so much that he had to be restrained from leaving the stage, like, in between movements. What? Yeah. So oh, it's sort of like, it took Brahms. a bit of time for him to get going. And he was so self-critical. So when Schumann wrote this article being like, oh my God, Brahms is the best, everyone listen to Brahms. He was like, oh Oh, no. (laughs) And just felt this enormous pressure because like he was obviously so prodigiously talented. Uh, (laughs) Oh, sweetie. Um, (laughs) And he just felt so much pressure to like live up to this Beethoven standard and he felt he had to be as good as Beethoven and Schumann and all these people. Yeah. Anyway, so this will lead us neatly into the first piece we're going to talk about. Yeah, it does, it does. So the first piece I want to talk about is his third symphony. Great. um, Which he wrote in 1883. Lucky number three. Um, So it took him a while to get rolling on the old symphonic game. He'd written a bunch of stuff. So, for example, in 1870, he said, I shall never write a symphony. In 1876, <laughs> he wrote a symphony. He's such a joker. I love him so much. Practical jokes all over the shop. What's he like? Absolutely brilliant. Anyway, so he, because he felt so much pressure from living in the shadow of Beethoven, basically, like being in these sort of Viennese and German circles. Mm. Everyone's like, this guy's the next Beethoven. This guy. And quite often his his first symphony is sometimes called Beethoven's Tenth, because it's sort of it's viewed Shut as very up. much yeah, following Ooh, that tradition. That is pressure. However, I'm gonna talk about um his third symphony. So once he'd written the first one, he was then on a roll and like every few years like churned out another symphony. Mm. I love this symphony so, so much. I've been listening to it nonstop. He's been going week. on about it all day. I really have. <laughs> He's been going on it's about so it so good. Literally all day. Yeah. So the little sort of acronym that used to talk about this uh, symphony was FAF, Frei aber froh, which means um, free but happy. So this is a reference to Mm. earlier in his life. uh, He was very good friends with a violinist named Josef Joachim. Um, Not enough time to get into that, but they were super good buds. Um, And so together with Schumann, one of Schumann's pupils, they each wrote part of a violin sonata for Joachim um, called the FAE, Frei aber einsam, which means free but alone. Oh, no. <laughs> oh no! Um, so that was sort of like an ongoing thing. Anyway, so by the time he gets to his third symphony, Brahms is a fifty-year-old bachelor, but is loving life. Eighteen K eighty-three. So wait, is he free but sad or free but happy? He's free but happy. <laughs> okay, great. So he's absolutely great, loving life. Lovely. Um, so this F A F Frei aber froh. Comes through in the music in the note letters F A flat F. Like a Shostakovich kind like a Shostakovich, of like, like at the bar. post office. Yeah, nice, yeah. nice. Um, nice callback there. <laughs> yeah. Listen to some of our back episodes if you want to get that reference. For those jokes. Yeah, nice. Anyway, so this F A F motif appears all the way throughout the first movement and gets sort of repeated and called back to throughout. Mm-hmm. So we're going to play it now, listen to the chords underneath the tune. Those go F, A flat, F, and the tune with some passing notes in between goes F, A flat, F. It's so good. Can we please just listen now? This better be good. (laughs) 
Yeah, so I don't know if you heard that. So the tune was F, A flat, F. Mm. And then underneath the chords went F, <laughs> A flat, F, Faf. Very fat. What a faff. What a um, faff. Absolutely lovely. Really nice. Oh, it's just so good. And so he weaves sometimes as obviously as that. So that sort of really bombastic. That like repeats itself a few times in the first movement. Nice. Then throughout the whole symphony, it sort of just gets like woven in quite cleverly. Oh, yeah. Subtle. And this is what uh, Brahms was really good at. It was So he also references um, Schumann's third symphony mm. in, I think, the third or fourth movement in mm-hmm, this. Mm-hmm. And it's just really... I'm not alone in thinking it's really good, by the you way. You are not alone. I'm another, with you here forever. Another common theme that we're finding is composers looking at other composers and being like, Damn. I, I'm a piece <laughs> of trash in comparison. So Elgar had this to say, I look at the third symphony of Brahms and I feel like a pygmy. Not desperately PC, wow. but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not quite he is the master of us all, but not quite. I mean, I'll take it. But in the same way, Brahms was like, oh my God, Dvorak, you're the best. <laughs> Elgar was like, oh my God, Brahms, you're the best. <laughs> um, so yeah, Brahms has just had a huge impact on German music and European music in general at this point. So yeah, hope you enjoyed that. I did. <laughs> So before talking about the next Brahms piece, mm. I wanted to talk a little bit about the beef I alluded to in the 60-second <laughs> biog. <laughs> nice. There was buff. Oh, um, so it was between uh, Wagner and his fans and Brahms and his fans. Okay. So um, Brahms is often thought of as quite like a conservative composer in sort of his style. So he didn't really do anything that messed around with like the form that much so he very much followed in the footsteps of his predecessors so one contemporary writer talks about the three b's bach beethoven and brahms so he's very much viewed as like in the tradition tradition of these like great composers right so it was that way of thinking composing versus what was called the new german school and there were different approaches in how to write music for an audience that is really au fait with like centuries of music already so brahms Go steps to Beethoven on his own turf, and it's like, well, audiences already know this kind of vibe, this sort of yeah, feel, yeah, yeah. this structure of pieces. Mm. I'm gonna do something new within this format and like synthesize ideas from use synthesizers. He yeah, didn't use synthesizers, <laughs> but he synthesized ideas right, yeah. together. Um, Wagner, on the other hand, uh, sees Beethoven's legacy as pointing more towards sort of drama and symphonic poems like Dvorak thought and yeah. like opera and stuff. Mm-hmm. Brahms never did anything like this. He never ever had any kind of narrative in his music. It mm-hmm. was sort of music wasn't subservient to other arts or like linked to other arts in his mind it was sort of very standalone okay. so there's no there's never any like story to any of the stuff he oh, wrote it's just dry. like dry as a bone that's what some people argue <laughs> and that because of this he's like quite a small c conservative right. uh, composer and it's like not that exciting right however i fundamentally disagree with that so that is what i had thought for a long time but then recently i've been listening to quite a lot more brahms and just been like hot damn so he would hot never damn you, he would never write about Got water goblins. There would be no me. wet git goblins uh, in Brahms' work. Okay. So he That's did follow the footsteps of his predecessors, but he was kind of the first one to see all of music as like one big corpus to draw from. Okay. In the sense that he 
yes, was super influenced by Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, but also, like I mentioned before, when he was a, a youngster, he would play in like brothels and restaurants and stuff, play the piano. Oh, yeah. And so would be absorbing all kinds of like folk music and Hungarian folk yes, tunes and like yeah, gypsy yeah. style music. Oh, yeah. Big um, fan. So he incorporated these new elements into traditional forms. Mm-hmm. And so I think he understood a lot more than many if not most composers in fact mm-hmm. the sort of end goal and the the audience basically so he writes music that's sort of superficially engaging and doesn't really necessarily challenge the listener in terms of they they recognize what's happening if you know what i mean like yeah. they're getting a symphony they're getting a piano concerto there you go whereas wagner's mm-hmm. like have a million hour long opera you will enjoy yeah, this <laughs> yeah um <laughs> So yeah, he writes the stuff that sort of, as well as being superficially beautiful, obviously has all this hidden depth to it, and right. it's really great. Right. Um, so the last little treat of a piece from Brahms is uh, his Hungarian dance number five. Yay! Oh, I love um, it! So yeah, this is something he picked up from younger in his life, a love for this sort of Hungarian dancing style. Amazing. Um, I think you might know it. Let's play it. Absolute tune. Tune it's, with a CH. Total CH-O-O-N. Another one of these ones that just hangs around on TV a lot. You hear it on TV, yeah. you hear it around, you're like, what the hell is that? And no one ever tells you, but it's Brahms. It's Brahms. So, and so yeah. similar to how we gave all our recommendations for Dvorak before, mm. for Brahms, I mean, he wrote Lullaby. He wrote the bloody Lullaby. The Lullaby. He's got a violin concerto that's extraordinarily good. Yeah. His first symphony that took him years and years to write. Oh, Wow. The one where he's like, I will never write a symphony. Okay, I'm going to write a symphony. I'm going to do it. <laughs> uh, is, after all the work he put into it, very, very good. Amazing. Um, Brahms. Thanks. Bad Classical Podcast. And so, here we are. And uh, now... <laughs> um, we hope you've really enjoyed this episode about mm. Dvorak and Brahms. We have to go off and sing at a wedding now, so we better go. <laughs> but um, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do uh, go to all our social media outlets. Chris, help me. Uh, so you can find follow us on Twitter. We're at That Classical. You can find us on Instagram at That Classical Insta. If you want to send us some longer form feedback, uh, you can find us, or you can email us rather... <laughs> That classical email at gmail.com. But first and foremost, what should they do, Kelly? Please, please. <laughs> I'll give you a pigeon. Um, if you go on iTunes and give us a cheek, cheeky little five star uh, review, we'd absolutely love that. And we're so grateful to everyone who's already left a review. Mm. And thank you so much. And if you leave us a review telling us about your favourite train journey, we're going to send you a special prize. <laughs> you TBD. Are welcome. Otherwise, see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Bye.